I just don't know how to start it. About 20 years ago, we only had the interferons as disease-modifying drugs for multiple sclerosis, and it's amazing the progress that we've made over the last two decades. Now with uh, multiple oral agents available, multiple infusion agents available, and the recent FDA approval of daclizumab, which is the newest therapy on the market. So there's a lot to choose from now in terms of modifying someone's multiple sclerosis and getting them on therapy. And, you know, that's where we hope to talk a little bit more about today. All right, welcome to Brainwaves. I'm Jim Siegler. Today we'll be discussing disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs, in multiple sclerosis. Uh, I've got Dr. Christopher Perone here, who's one of my co-residents at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, who's going to talk about when we start treatment, what agent do we choose, oral, IV, injectable therapies, uh, how do we choose when to switch someone off a current therapy into something else, or how to convert someone's uh, therapy into a, an alternative therapy. So welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Jim. Multiple sclerosis is a devastating chronic inflammatory illness of the central nervous system with enormous healthcare costs in the U.S. and abroad and poor clinical outcomes with deference of early treatment. It's kind of basic, but what's the objective we hope to achieve in treating a patient with multiple sclerosis? Well, in any case of multiple sclerosis, the goal is to decrease relapses and MRI activity. And typically, patients with relapse-remitting MS have better responses to DMTs. The jury is still out on preventing progression of disability. And how do you choose uh, how to initiate therapy? It really depends on the patient. There are many factors you have to consider. Efficacy, route of administration, tolerability, lifestyle, prior medical history, um, also the aggressiveness of an individual patient's disease, and also the safety profiles, um, whether or not a patient is pregnant, has a history of cancer or prior immunosuppression, as well as infectious complications. I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but there are certainly some that are pregnancy category X and some that you really want to avoid in patients with cancer, so looking forward to getting into those details. Let's just start simply. Assume you have a patient who's a young, otherwise healthy 34-year-old male who with suspected MS. What kind of drugs would you offer him? Well, in patients with milder disease or so-called treatment-naive patients, the first-line drugs remain the injectables, the ABCR drugs, um, which refers to their trade names of Avonex, Betaceron, Copaxone, and Rebif. In addition to these four drugs, I would also add Plegardy, which is a pegylated interferon. Note the name of these ABCR drugs refer to their trade names as opposed to their generics. And while many agents are approved as first-line drugs in addition to the ABCR regimen, experts usually agree that the injectables remain a reasonable first-line option. They work by reducing pro-inflammatory cytokines and increase anti-inflammatory molecules. Copaxone, while it was initially thought to be somewhat of a decoy molecule, has also been found to modulate cytokines. And these drugs have been around since the early 1990s. They are widespread in their use, and they have the most data supporting their effectiveness um, with very minimal side effects. What kind of side effects are you talking about? Well, most commonly we're thinking about flu-like symptoms, but only usually after the first few doses. Also elevated LFTs and depression, and that's for the interferons. For Copaxone, the side effect that gets talked about the most is lipoatrophy at injection sites, so-called injection welts. But remember, this drug also has the most evidence of safety in pregnancy. When you initiate a therapy in your patients, what are some of the barriers you encounter with the ABCR class of medications? 
Well, the most common reason for patients not taking their injectables is patients just don't remember. You can imagine forgetting to inject when the schedule is irregular, and most are administered every two days, beta-seron being every other day, copaxone three times weekly, um, but previously daily, Rebif is also three times weekly, Avinex once weekly, and now also Plegrity, which is once bi-weekly. And I imagine injections probably also scare most of your patients, and having to deal or dispose of the needles may be a bit of a hassle. Can you talk to me about some of the oral formulations? Sure. The first oral drug, Gelenia, also known as Fingolimod, came out in 2010. Fingolimod is a sphingosine receptor modulator that traps lymphocytes and lymph nodes, and it is taken by mouth once daily. It's highly effective, with greater than 50% of patients having fewer relapses, or new T2 lesions after two years. But, seeing as sphingosine receptors are present in other tissues, a patient has to go through significant screening for potential cardiac, ophthalmologic, and dermatologic complications. Next, there is daily albagio, or teraflunamide, which was approved in 2012. Teraflunamide inhibits pyrimidine synthesis in rapidly dividing cells, such as activated T and B cells. However, this medication is limited in its use because it's pregnancy category X. The third, and probably the most popular agent, is dimethylfumarate, or tecfidera, which is a twice-daily medication. The drug has about a 70% reduction in the risk of new T2 lesions after 12 weeks, and a similar 50% reduction in annual relapses. Dimethylfumarate is believed to work by inhibiting the NERF2 pathway, which prevents oxidative damage, and also induces apoptosis of specific T-cell populations, particularly CD4. However, it has been associated with diarrhea, um, which can be decreased by taking it with fatty meals, also flushing, um, which can be decreased by premedicating with aspirin. Risks notwithstanding, you have a pretty basic oral arsenal for patients with MS who break through on the platform therapies or are are unable to take these uh, injections. But unlike the ABCR drugs, these meds have a significantly less long-term safety data Besides the oral agents and the ABCR drugs, what else do you offer your patients? Well, lastly, we have the infusions, and the most common um, is the once-monthly Tysabri, or natalizumab. Natalizumab is an anti-alpha-4 integrin antibody that prevents the entry of white blood cells into the CNS. It is remarkably effective and is occasionally used as a first-line agent for young patients with fulminant presentations or significant disease burden on initial presentation. However, it risks PML, which is uniformly devastating. It has also been linked with HSV and VZV infections of the central nervous system. What other infusion options do you have? Well, the most recently approved IV infusion therapy is alemtuzumab, or Lemtrada, which is an antibody against CD52 and effectively decimates white blood cells. Decimates. <laughs> the benefits of this therapy are that it's given annually. That's right, annually. Annually? Yes, annually. <laughs> Although alumtuzumab is highly effective, because of its immunosuppressive effects, monthly labs are required, and pills have to be taken for two months after as prophylaxis against herpetic infections. There is also a greater risk of autoimmune conditions and iris. The last of the IV infusions is mitoxantrone, which is the only FDA-approved secondary progressive disease medication. Mitoxantrone is a Q3-month chemotherapeutic that opposes DNA synthesis and repair, 
but is extremely limited in its use due to lifetime and dose-dependent risk of cardiotoxicity, as well as associations with hematologic malignancies. Half of the patients will actually develop some degree of systolic heart failure, and because there are so few options in secondary progressive disease, there has also been use of other chemotherapeutics, such as Celsept, also known as mycophenylamophetol, and Cytoxan, also known as cyclophosphamide, as well as off-label use of rituximab, which has shown even more promise in relapse-remitting MS. What really is PML exactly, and how do you assess the risk of developing this condition? Well, PML is a rapidly progressive demyelinating process that occurs with reactivation of the JC virus, which then results in accelerated cognitive, visual, and motor deficits, as well as ataxia. A diagnosis is typically made with a consistent clinical history, a brain MRI, and newly extensive and progressive confluent white matter lesions. And there's also JCV positivity in the CSF. What medications are associated with PML? In MS, the medication linked with this condition is predominantly natalizumab, which led to its removal from the market in 2005, and its reinstatement with improved safety measures in 2006. But it's also reported in fengolimod and dimethyl fumarate, as well as rituximab, although not with patients who are treated for multiple sclerosis with rituximab. Even drugs like alemtuzumab and mycophenolate mofetil have reported cases of JC virus reactivation and PML. Yeah, you're right, and it's an important step in considering this medic, you know, these medications for your MS patients. You have to really think about risk stratification, which is really based on three tiers of information. The first is JC virus status. If the CSF antibody testing is negative, the chance of developing PML is about one in ten thousand. If the patient is JC virus positive, the next step is to consider prior immunosuppression and duration of therapy. With no prior immunosuppression. Risk of PML for 1 to 24 months of natalizumab is the same as actually being JCV negative, 1 in 10,000. But with higher JCV titers, the risk increases to 0.1%, which, although it sounds low, is still really bad. And if the patient has been on prior immunosuppression? Then the risk only really increases once they're on therapy for 25 to 48 months with low titers still about a 0.1% risk of PML, but higher titers increasing the odds to 1 in 100. These increases are similar when on dimethyl fumarate for 49 to 72 months. So if you're on prior immunosuppression before the 25-month mark and you continue with the same JC virus titers in the CSF thereafter, your risk of developing PML at 25 months is the same as developing at 48 or 72 months. Is that right? That's right. Okay. What should I do if I think my patient is developing PML? Well, you have to first address the immunosuppression. If they're on some form of immunosuppression, you should stop that. If they're on natalizumab, you should stop that immediately. Um, and even consider plasmapheresis to remove the remaining antibodies. However, there are no specific guidelines for the treatment of PML at this time. Mortality is 25%. Among survivors, they are often severely disabled. The bottom line is... Know your JCV antibody status, be weary of other immunomodulators, and you might want to avoid keeping your patient on natalizumab for more than two years. What are some of the other contraindications to disease-modifying therapies? There are only three drugs with absolute contraindications. Teraflunamide in pregnancy um, and with hepatic impairment, natalizumab with other immunosuppressants, 
or in a patient with a history of PML, and third, alemtuzumab in HIV. You'd probably want to avoid any of the drugs associated with PML in your HIV patients anyway. Interferons are relatively contraindicated in patients with hepatic impairment, seizure disorders, and thyroid dysfunction. Netolizumab should be avoided in those with autoimmune diseases because it increases that risk. Forfingolimod, the highly potent oral DMT associated with cardiovascular, hepatic, dermatologic, and ophthalmologic complications, don't use this in patients with any sort of organ dysfunction. It may be acceptable in patients with mild kidney disease. Finally, alemtuzumab and rituximab should be avoided in patients with hepatitis B or C, as there is a slight risk for viral reactivation. Speaking of viral reactivation, what's the official policy on administering live or inactivated vaccines in these patients? In general, live viral vaccines are pretty safe with the platform therapies. Reactivation or proliferation of viruses is thought to occur only when cellular immunity is impaired, as in patients on alemtuzumab, which is, you know, decimates white blood cells. Decimation. Besides blood work before starting alemtuzumab, what other tests should I order for my patients before starting at a DMT? Well, for the platform therapies, um, they should be preceded by basic lab tests, like a CBC, a metabolic panel, LFTs, and a vitamin D level. I trend LFTs over time for patients on interferons due to the risk of subclinical hepatotoxicity. For the non-platform agents, JCV testing and an immunodeficiency panel should be obtained. There is actually some data to suggest that leukopenia increases the risk of PML, and most cases are found in HIV patients. Other newer medications such as vingolimod and dimethylfumarate may cause leukopenia, so it's important to monitor these patients with routine CBCs every 3 to 6 months and spaced out to 6 to 12 months if clinically stable. Once a patient is JCV positive, their titer should be tracked, as there is some evidence supporting that viral replication in the weeks to months occurs before PML becomes evident. So I've heard that fingolimod is particularly toxic, as well as alemtuzumab and modexantrone. Besides laboratory testing, is there anything special that I should do for these patients? Actually, I mean, severe infections occurred in about 5% of trial patients on fingolimod including a fatal case of HSV encephalitis and disseminated zoster. Therefore, VZV immune testing should be conducted, and a booster should be given if it's negative. Since fingolimod can cause bradycardia and AV block, every patient should have a baseline EKG, and the first dose of the medication should be administered in the office with close monitoring. Referral to a cardiologist should also be made if the patient has significant cardiac history prior to initiation. Due to the risk of macular edema, ophthalmological consult for baseline and six-month interval follow-up is recommended in fingolimod as well. When is relapse considered a treatment failure, and when should I consider switching agents? Before considering a change in DMT therapy, you should be convinced of a breakthrough event, typically with radiographic confirmation. You should rule out pseudoflares, such as UTIs in the setting of urine retention, pneumonias in the setting of diaphragmatic weakness, and systemic infections due to sacral decubitus ulcers from prolonged disability. As a general rule, new gadolinium-enhancing lesions are far more concerning than new non-enhancing T2 lesions. If there's only one new non-enhancing lesion, you can probably get away with a repeat MRI in three to six months. Or if the patient has been on the same DMT for less than six months, it'll be unclear whether or not the new lesion occurred before or after therapy initiation. That's why I usually keep the patient on the same therapy for six months 
And if there's a new enhancing lesion or multiple new non-enhancing lesions, then I would talk about changing agents. Besides the immunomodulators, are there any other drugs in treating MS that I should be aware of? There are several adjunctive treatments for MS beyond the gamut of immunosuppressants, and you should always be aware of alternative regimens to improve your patient's quality of life. Like delfampridine. Delfampridine is a potassium channel blocker that improves nerve conduction and is approved for gait dysfunction for patients with intact creatinine clearance. Baclofen or tizanidine have also been used for spasticity, and also oxybutynin for bladder spasms. You can treat neuropathic pain as you would any other patient, and depression and fatigue are also very common complaints in MS, seen in as many as 30 to 50 percent. All patients deserve a good depression screen, and also consider amantadine, modafinil, or armodafinil for fatigue. So just in the last couple of weeks, another injectable medication called daclizumab was FDA approved for the treatment of relapsing remitting MS. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, daclizumab is essentially a monoclonal antibody to a subunit of the IL-2 receptor. Compared to platform therapies, daclizumab resulted in 54% reduction in new lesions in the DECIDE trial. And, you know, in the next year, we're actually expecting FDA approval for a new infusion therapy called ocrelizumab. Like rituximab, ocrelizumab is a humanized monoclonal anti-CD20 antibody. What about the stem cell therapies? That's a good question. We're still in developmental phases for them. So far, the HALT-MS trial has demonstrated an amazing 86% reduction in relapses for MS patients, three years after autologous transplants. But there's still significant challenges ahead, such as the durability of a transplant, transplant candidacy, as well as protocolization. All right, great. Thanks, Chris, so much for that whirlwind tour through DMTs and adjunctive therapies and multiple sclerosis. Only 20 years into treating MS, we've already identified a dozen effective drugs and many more on the way, including the newly released daclizumab, which we're going to be following up in the next couple of years as far as efficacy and safety. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Chris. We really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks, Jim. That's all I've got for you today. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. Take care. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Josh Woodward. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Brainwaves.